What's up, everybody? This is Grant, that cause artist. Welcome to another episode of the Disruptors for Good podcast. Today, we have a really special guest, Konstantin Venaranya, who has done many, many things with his life, has many, many titles, and I will try to run through a few of them before we get started. Konstantin is a member of the Dutch royal family. He has a law degree. He's worked for the European Commission, the RAND Corporation, the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's also the co-founder of Startup Fest Europe. He's also a member of the National Growth Fund Assessment Committee, as well as the chairman of the advisory board of the SIDN Fund. He was also in a group of 15 independent members that advised the European Commission on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, which eventually led to a really interesting fund that was created to invest in startups, which we touch on a little bit. It's a really some really, really interesting stuff. He and his wife, Princess Laurentine, also founded the Number 5 Foundation with the goal of connecting people who are committed to innovation that could contribute to a just and sustainable society. I have barely tapped into what he has accomplished in his life so far, so I apologize for not getting into it all, but I really want to get into to the conversation that we have. It mostly relates to startups here in the Netherlands, how he and TechLeap are working with governments, with the private sector, trying to form this beautiful dance between the private sector and the public sector to get more capital in the startups into innovation uh, around the Netherlands and look at how to scale businesses, you know, frankly, like, like American companies. You really take that philosophy and that those principles of scale and innovation into an ecosystem here in the Netherlands that can create impactful startups, unicorns that really impact the world in a lot of different areas. We touch on healthcare, food and agriculture. The e-bike revolution here in specifically where I am in Amsterdam is is huge. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing transformation of transportation that's sort of taking place here and that is going to be scaling around the world. Uh, it's going to be massive in America. Or well, a startup that has come out of Amsterdam is scaling to America currently as we speak. So you'll see a lot more e-bikes, I believe, in America very, very soon. So if you like topics around startups and public and private partnerships and how they work, they can work together to innovate cities and countries around the world, you'll love this conversation. I really hope you enjoy it, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Well, thanks so much, Constantine, for for joining me today. It's uh, it's been a fun journey for, for me to come to, to the Netherlands and kind of discover the, the startup ecosystem here and, and what founders and funders are, are sort of talking about and, and being involved in sort of the startup ecosystem. It's really fascinating what's going on here. And, and I kind of want to talk a little bit about your journey first and, and how maybe you, you know, fell upon startups and, and kind of your journey into maybe not falling in love with startups. That's a little bit romantic, mm-hmm. but like, you know, the idea that using startups to invigorate and innovate, you know, cities and, and the country and, and maybe, you know, the Europe as a whole and how startups can sort of do that. So, so walk us through a little bit of your journey of how you, you know, got to, to really like, you know, the startup ecosystem and, and why you decided to dedicate a lot of your time and maybe life to it. Well, it's, it's actually a, a very graduate story. I did an MBA and I went to Busan and Hamilton and, and then uh, did a bunch of work around uh, actually all this kind of digital developments, you know, e, mm-hmm. e, whatever. And we did a comparative research for the World Economic Forum on, uh, you know, are countries ready in digitization and how far they were. And, and then I joined the RAND Corporation and then the, eventually I got to lead their informatics economics uh, policy team. So we were doing a lot of ton of work for the European Commission on the impact of digital for, you know, on all kinds of domains. 
So I was kind of gradual, and then I became the uh, the chief of staff of uh, the vice president of European Commission on digital matters. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then this was 2010, and, and there wasn't a lot of understanding about what digital was, and we were preaching that this is kind of a horizontal technology, and and, and but everybody basically were putting us in verticals. So you had a, you got transportation, you got energy, and then there's this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ICT thing, you know, and and it was mostly telecoms. Whereas we said no, this is actually transformational and if we don't kind of pick up the pace in Europe they were going to come <laughs> behind and we didn't really get our message across very well with policymakers and we started looking for um, for ambassadors and uh, very quite rapidly we found um, uh, tech startups as the as our kind of natural allies they were and you'd find them in any space in healthcare or in education mm -hmm. and then but also general space you know obviously in in uh, enterprise software and stuff. And they were transforming things. They were actually the, the vanguard of where things were heading. And we felt that, you know, we didn't have the apples and the, and, and, and the, the Googles that America had. And um, uh, we didn't believe it was something that you do as a government need to, to kind of try to force down, but we need to kind of create an environment where more, more of these entrepreneurs could, could emerge. And so we basically set out, and this was my boss at the time, Aneli Cruz, who went to all the events uh, from Le Web or Picnic or campus party with the events at the time to go and speak to uh, entrepreneurs and, and listen to them basically well, what do you yeah. what is it you need so and we set up the digital leaders club with um, uh, daniel Eck and uh, niklas zenstrom and uh, the founders of rovio you know the angry angry birds yep and uh, and 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 more you know martha lane fox in the in, in the uk basically to have a group of people that could actually be role models and show, you know, this is, you know, you can actually make it big in Europe. And um, to come up with a, a list of areas that we could develop as policymakers uh, to create a better space for entrepreneurs. So that's basically how it started. And then um, when I was done at the European Commission, I started, I, I really wanted to work with entrepreneurs because they have much more of a kind of can-do mentality, whereas our, you know, the policymaking space is more about, you know, stopping people from doing stuff. I feel sometimes, <laughs> you know, if you want to change things, you don't you don't always get all the enthusiasm on your side so and i felt i was getting really good at trying to work my way around uh, negative energy sure. and so um and i set up um startup fest which was uh just an idea and i developed that with a with a kind of a co-founder mr jim stolzer here in the netherlands and uh we and finally we it just kind of all worked out as a kind of a festival within one week we had thirty-six thousand uh, people joining at, at uh, in 16 location at over wow. 30 events and we had tim Cook and Travis Kalanick and uh, you know all the, the a lot of big hitters in tech coming over and uh, so it was like a bit of a surprise like what you and everyone <laughs> saying what are these guys doing in the Netherlands you know and 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 we really wanted to kickstart this startup idea which as a different way of doing business a different way of innovating uh, across the Netherlands so in all these different domains and uh, and then I was asked to become envoy of startups in the Netherlands by the government and they kind of basically took off took off from there so that's um, the long version of uh, yeah no and it seems like tech leap is the natural maturation of of all those things now there's there's kind of this this digital hub right and we don't we don't want to replace anything that's happening in the market right so events we don't want to do events just there are tech events we've got the the, the next web yep. and we have uh, many other events so we could do we do very targeted things or we would yep. do in the margin of for instance a slush conference we would kind of bring uh, really organize a dinner only with founders and investors and, yep. and and make it more curated. We don't want to I sit in, you know, 
on the chair of, of, of entrepreneurs that are actually doing stuff in this space. Yep. So yep. we really want to add value. And, um, and if we feel that the market is picking up, you know, that specific function, we will retreat. But for, for what, what is really important is that we gather a lot of data. So we understand mm. much better what's happening in the ecosystem. So we can actually talk to the government in, at, a, at, a, at a higher level of uh, sophistication and, yeah. um, and, and make more systemic change happen. So that's one part. The other part is that we're seeing that a lot of our actually relatively successful entrepreneurs still do not get the kind of access that they would have if they would be in Silicon Valley or if they'd be in some, mm. you know, maybe in London. So providing a selected group of, of startups and at the end of our tenure, tenure it will be about like uh, probably something like 200, 200, maybe 300 scale-ups that we would have directly supported, um, giving them access, um, giving them support in, you know, in a critical phase of their existence, you know, between 40 and, and 100 employees when they're really scaling up. So mm -hmm. we're doing these kind of interventions and, and then, uh, but also with, with universities helping to um, professionalize the whole tech transfer system, which is still yep. relatively university centric and science centric instead of entrepreneur centric and to making that transition uh, happen that's something that we are also very active in when you mention access do you mean specifically access to capital or access to mentorship is it just all around access to what uh, american ecosystems have capital is obviously very important and um, and 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 also doing that in a strategic way we find that quite a number of our startups have uh, in their early years gathered capital uh, without a, a plan and they uh, they uh, might have a cap table yeah. which actually stops them from uh, mm -hmm. progressing in later later stages so the earlier on uh, companies are more get more strategic about who they uh, who they work with uh, also on the funding side the better it is dutch entrepreneurs typically are quite insular and quite transactional so they will just go on, go at it alone, and then uh, maybe turn to investors when once they need money instead of doing it when they don't need uh, money. Which mm -hmm. means that they are in a much better negotiating position. Uh, but yeah, access to capital, but also I think which maybe even more important is access to critical, uh, well-intended critical feedback. Mm, so okay. it's not you know it's it's you know in a constructive way, but but it can be very tough, and we need to be much tougher with our entrepreneurs because um, we tend to kind of cheer them on and then let them make their own mistakes and then mm -hmm. uh, which they could have been easily avoided if somebody would just told them much earlier on you know so where's your market how big do you think your market is what sales capacity are you building you know at looking at your organization are you are you organizing yourself for growth uh, how, how diverse is your is your team uh, all these kind of questions that are pretty obvious and that um, but you, if, if you're a founder and you're building something, you might be too focused on your product or you might be too focused yep. on purpose or on something and you're just missing out on some of those easy things that are there that people can just tell you as long as they can you know, hold a mirror up. And, uh, but we don't, that's not, it's, we don't have the, the proverbial Starbucks around the corner where you bump into your, you know, your angel investor or your, mm. you know, or your mentor or your advisor. And, um, and so a bit of being the proverbial um, Palo Alto uh, Starbucks around the corner is, is also a function that we, that we, we try to fill in. Well, we talked, we talked, mentioned a little bit about government earlier and policies, I think really important for, for businesses to, to really understand what's available to them or maybe what's not available and how to make policy better towards, you know, startups. And I had listened to the, the episode with, with you and Joe with uh, Taco from uh, Van yeah. Mouth mm -hmm. and he was mentioning something about, you know, hiring. 
uh, around sort of getting really, really talented people into startups is, is a bit difficult, maybe in the Netherlands, because of there was something around they couldn't offer equity or something like that. I, I can't remember exactly what he mentioned about it, but in a policy area or arena, what can be done or is being done maybe to make you know startups much more easily access talent, maybe from from globally, yeah. right? Not just the Netherlands, but just in yeah. general. So there's a yeah, there, there are a number of things you can do. Obviously, one is the is your visa requirements and and who you can actually attract to the Netherlands. And we have a startup visa, but it only it's only for the founder, which is useless because you want to mm. bring your team or you want to bring your partner. So we've kind of extended that, but it's 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 all incremental. So grown that now, you can bring your the critical team members over as well. You can actually bring. And this is a, a, a the latest extension of this of this regulation is that you can actually bring critical staff over uh, at a, quite a low salary rate as long as you give them up to one percent equity. So this is for really critical hires in your company that you want to attract from abroad. That's now enabled. Mm. So I think then there is the whole the whole topic of stock options and um, and how generous the founders are and the Im investors. <laughs> It's a, it's a big story around the investors actually pushing founders to reserve equity for their staff and for mm. um, you know, supporting that kind of co-ownership because not all entrepreneurs are that uh, generous. Then there is the whole fiscal side that it's not fiscally not that attractive uh, in the Netherlands to, to give options because it's treated as a salary. So you basically get income mm. tax over it and, the, gotcha. and, and you're taxed at the moment that you actually receive the options where you don't typically have the the the, the money the liquidity to actually uh, pay the taxes which is a ridiculous situation so that situation we're now solving uh, the moment where you pay your your tax and that make that uh, you can basically choose to the the moment you actually get the options or at the moment that the shares are are liquid but because there's an exit or there's a secondary or, or or something that's like a first step and now we need to go into is this capital gains or is this income and uh, mm -hmm. our tax authorities really want to keep it as income tax and we say no it's it's, it's not, a, <laughs> not it's not the same as a as salary because there's a high risk it will never pay out and right. uh, and why, if you are the owner of the company, it is actually treated as capital, and uh, that if you get shares as a as a salary component, why would that not be capital? Why would the investor pay capital gains and the owner, but the employee not? And that's kind of an unfair situation. And we are trying to tell the the tax authority that this is not just fiscal policy, but this is a, this is human capital policy. This is we yeah. trying to to attract the best and the best and brightest to the Netherlands, you know, we, we, then we have to have a competitive fiscal treatment of, uh, of, of stock options. Do you think it benefits the Netherlands that it's sort of a much smaller country that you can work with the government maybe much easier on policy changes and shifts where good ideas can actually get brought to fruition in, in policy much quicker than it could maybe, you know, in a France and a Germany, in, you know, in Italy, much bigger country where it goes through, I imagine it might go through a couple more, <laughs> go more iterations a couple more people well, have to approve certain things. I don't know if size is an issue. Um, it's definitely if you look at Estonia or Luxembourg, you know, smaller countries that mm -hmm. it's it's easier to connect with leaders in anything. You know, corporate leaders yeah. or there are just fewer and, and and lines are shorter. But the Netherlands is is a is a small big country. You know, with 17, 18 million people. Um, we have more inhabitants than all of Scandinavia, which means that wow. there and it's very dense. So um, mm -hmm. we're 
of that, all those people, we're one of the densest populated uh, countries in the world, and, uh, and and especially in Europe. So everything is organized. And if you just fly over the Netherlands, it's it's like a it's amazing how everything seems to be planned. And it actually is because we have <laughs> parts of the country that are allowed to flood because we have the water issue, and then we have everything mm. is zoned. And in such an organized structure, it becomes quite difficult to be flexible and and to. Uh, to to make policy because you you know you pull one string out of a system and then you don't know where the impact is going to happen in the rest of the system. Like take healthcare, uh, we really want to innovate in healthcare, but the healthcare system is not a healthcare market. So and if we we treat it yeah, as a market, see, right. we want startups to grow and you know bring innovations to to the market and grow internationally. But, but the healthcare system doesn't care about that. They want affordable care to everyone. And there's a fear that if you start plucking you know at the system or if you're putting innovation. Sure the system you're actually creating more friction so the system as a whole becomes less efficient even though you are make, bringing efficiency or a better customer value to one specific section of the system so it's very resistant to that kind of change and the vested interest will try to push out or keep out that kind of systems innovation uh, so that's our challenge so in that sense we are we are a big in terms of complexity, we are a relatively big company, a country, and we don't have the, the luxury that you'd have in, in a Luxembourg or in, uh, in I think, Switzerland. Well, Switzerland, you also have this layered system of cantons, but uh, where there's more direct direct government and you can actually yeah. you know, implement decisions uh, quicker. I had read something before I came over here, actually, where the, I guess the EU developed some sort of, it, they were allocating funds, essentially creating their own fund to invest in startups in mm-hmm. Europe. And that is much different than sort of America, right? The government would never sort of make a fund and invest in, in startups. Just just not how it works. It's just like the government is much separate than than, mm-hmm. than business, right? They don't kind of mingle together no. at all. But I thought it was an interesting idea. And and, and I don't know your thoughts on it, where the government actually sets aside, you know, capital and essentially taxpayers' money, but that invest in, you know, local entrepreneurs, local startups to kind of be there for them, right? Rather than being sort of a pain in their side a little bit, they're kind of allocating capital, which is obviously important. But I, I also imagine that it brings on other things as well of how to work with the government to, to implement your startup and, and scale successfully, maybe more efficiently uh, than you would you know, going against sort of, you know, government policy. But I just thought that was an interesting idea. Yeah, actually, I was an advisor to that. Um, uh, yeah. We set it up. No, no and, and I'm um, I'm in two minds about these things. I think you really want to ensure that you crowd in commercial money, so private money. Yeah, and public money sure. uh, should not crowd out private money because there's never enough there. And it's always right. more bureaucratic and, and is less professional. So when we set up this this European fund, they said it should be the dumbest money allocated by the smartest people. <laughs> Non-dilutive uh, you know, money going in. Um, but the, the, the moment that the government also wants kind of the influence you know, in the governance of a company, then right. yep. I think what you should, if you, to understand what this is, you should look at uh, two things. One is, is the kind of the Singaporean Israeli model where um, public funding actually crowds in uh, venture capital, for instance, for in, in I think in Singapore, for every every dollar of um, venture capital, uh, the, the the government would put five dollars of its mm. public money in to really attract the venture capital industry to Singapore, and it did an amazing job in that. And Israel as well has been attracting a lot of the big funds, uh, and, and Israel is spending I think uh, over a billion a year on on innovation and and especially wow. tech transfer. So they've done that well. The the other thing to understand is that this really is an extension of of research funding so you um 
And there, conceptually, that, there, there might be some flaws in that because typically government supports upstream research, which is fundamental and there's no market. Yep. And then at a certain point that, that research delivers something, you know, it can be patent or, and, and once it's a patent, then what do you do with it? You can license it to a, com- a government, but maybe it's too far from the market and you still have to develop it. So you have to start a startup. Then what? Does the government then drop it or continue to fund it? And, and mm-hmm. this handover between the market demand and the technology supply is really tricky. And, and the role of the government and that we typically don't you don't really uh, construct the full bridge it's it we have this uh, this bridge in france it's called the there's even a song about it. it's called the the the, the bridge of of uh, davignon and so the, the pont davignon and the thing with this bridge <laughs> is i think it's it's a it's a roman bridge but it doesn't have the last part is lacking so you have a big a big bridge and you you think you cross the river oh, no. but the last part isn't there so <laughs> i would say this is for me is the metaphor that you can keep pushing you know, yeah. from the research side, building this bridge, as long as you don't get it to the other side where the market is and where things can actually grow, then, you know, you maybe should save money and not spend too much on building a bridge that's not functional. And there's a bit of that. So to do it well is quite difficult. And as as long as the government stays away from trying to become a venture capitalist, but actually yep. crowds in venture capital and is very supportive of the entrepreneur and not of the technology, uh, then I think it could work. And then what it does on the research side, you know, that, that's a whole different story. But that may, you know, that's, that's open-ended research. Um, it might not li- deliver any kind of functional technology in the end, but uh, that's really where the government has a lot of, a lot of, a big role to play. And I mean, in the US, you have DARPA and others that are exemplary mm-hmm. for, for us. Uh, we would all want to have a DARPA, I think. Uh, I think that's been a very successful program. Has there been any initial data that come, came back from it? Like how, how is... How is sort of the fund interacting with startups already? Has it allocated capital or resources? Because I know it, it's fairly new, so I'm not sure yeah, if there's new, any initial feedback. This, this SME fund before, which um, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, and I think it had a only seven seven percent of applications actually get funded, so it's pretty tough to get in. But then it's uh, uh, twice. I think it's twice seven uh, percent. So the second that if you actually received it, you can go for a second tier, and mm-hmm. of all. Of the first tier, second is only seven percent get a second investment. But that means that you can actually get something like I think something like four million in total of non-dilutive capital, which is really interesting. And then on top, you can then start getting also um, an equity investment with some some guarantee of follow-on investment by the uh, EIB. Mm-hmm. And there, you have to start really thinking about if that's something for your company or not. And if you are a deep tech company where it's likely that you're dependent on uh, public funding for a longer period of time yeah. where you you don't find venture capital yet, then uh, this might be a very good instrument. Obviously, if you are building a, a SaaS uh, solution or a fintech, you know, you would not you would not get that. You don't even want to go after that kind of money. I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the startups coming out of the Netherlands. Van Mouth seems to be a really good beacon of what could happen here. I mean, I think they're expanding to the United States, across Europe. And, and then uh, Fair, I'm a big Fairphone fan. I, I think what they're doing is is also really, really incredible in the mobile mobile phone space, which is a really hard place to get into, especially building hardware. Yeah. Uh, really, really interesting. But is there, is there anybody else that you want to shout out or spotlight that is a really interesting company coming out of the Netherlands that has a chance to kind of really scale globally? Well, I mean, yeah, there, there. I think there, there are a number of companies in the whole um, um, lab meat space, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Obviously, yeah, don't really know yet if labs meat can actually make it, given also the its its inherent footprint in chemicals and others. Um, mm-hmm. So you, you're reducing your 
dependency on, on, on livestock and, and surface, you gain a lot of surface, but on the other hand, there are other issues and, and we don't really know if it's how scalable it is. But if that works, you know, if then uh, we yeah. have with bulls and Moza meat, we have a few companies that are really big in this space. So I, I find that, you know, I, I mean, I, I would really buy into that once it's, uh, once they can produce at industrial scale. Then there are a number of smaller companies like uh, Leiden Jar, which is a battery company um, that has, uh, has, has a quite a revolutionary technology, which gives you a yield of more than, you know, more than 10 times a normal battery. Mm. Uh, so those kinds of companies are exciting. At least technology are exciting, but there's always the question, you know, can, can a company like that actually develop a, a product that is, uh, that can be absorbed in the existing value chains? Yeah. Um, the cars are being built around a certain design and then, you know, you come with something new and then it also has design implication and all that. So mm -hmm. I don't know how scalable it will be, but it's, it's cool. Uh, then there's another company and they changed their name. They used to be called Spectrax and they, they have a, they designed a, a chip for virus and, um, and bacteria identification, but instant, you know, so actually they, it works for COVID as well, but it's, uh, the price point is still a bit too high because you have to have a, you have a kind of a mobile device on which you put the chip and the chip is i think 20 euros or 10 euros um, and then the mobile device is is which produced in switzerland it's it's uh something like twenty thousand or thirty thousand euros so that's so it's it's more it's that reduces currently reduces its its scalability but yeah. it means that you can basically test for all kinds of diseases at point so um without having to wait for 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 weeks and, and lab capability and stuff and so also for, for pandemics in the future, it's a very uh, flexible platform, non-chemistry based. Uh, it's based on uh, on optics technology and so the latest chip technology. So that's, I think that's really cool. And there are other, we, are, we have quite a, uh, a lot of enthusiasm around, around optics, photonics, uh, and, and with this the growing shortage of, of chips and, and the whole developments yep. in, uh, in uh, nanotechnology, I think that's, uh, that's an interesting space to look at. And then the health, health space is, is huge, but there, and we we're going to focus on health because um, we see a lot of startups, um, but we don't see the kind of investments that you see in other places and, and the health system itself is not is not really conducive to, to building big companies. So we see a lot of startups that are not scaling. And that's kind of an issue that we now want mm. to dive in deeper. What about uh, fintech and maybe specifically crypto? How does, I guess the Netherlands look at it, but also the EU overall. And I guess I'm learning that like countries can act independently from the EU, but like they, they sort of maybe dictate overall policy for the entire union. What, what has been the thoughts you know, from policymakers that you talk to or, or just entrepreneurs in general, are there much more maybe entrepreneurs coming to the Netherlands to, to build maybe crypto startups or, or specifically blockchain startups? Yeah. Um, and, and then maybe what's the what's the overall thought from, again, policymakers and, and investors that you talk to here? Well, it's, it's a hard one. We have a lot of um, developers in the space and um, and some some really cool initiatives like the momentum hackathon which always brings an international teams to the to the netherlands it's now going completely virtual so there's this there's this enthusiasm around the development but then there is a, a lot of skepticism among our say the at the regulators with sure. why, uh, kind of a harsher norms of of you know an aml and, and kyc than yeah. uh, is required in europe which is not you know, that that kind of drives out a lot of entrepreneurs that want to develop because they will they will they will build their business in the place where the regulatory burden is uh is the the lowest um yep. or at least will provide a 
reliable regulatory context in which you can develop your your business. And if, sure. if it's not reliable, they won't go. And if it's and if it's too harsh, they won't go. So um, and we are. <laughs> side at the end we're on the reliable side but not on the hard we're, we're mm. very hard. so it's, it's probably easier to get a banking license in you know in in latvia or estonia or, or you know because that's in the european space otherwise switzerland maybe or you know luxembourg that's that's a trouble i think i think blockchain is um is a is a great technology which fits really well with the dutch uh the yeah. dutch mindset and culture yeah. We are yeah. anti-authoritarian and we are, we like decentralization. Uh, and um, so basically everybody kind of building their own universe is something that goes down really well. <laughs> but that's really the conceptual part. And then, but building big businesses is another, is another art form and uh, or another craft, which many people that are in this space don't care too much about. They care about doing stuff uh, independently, you know, building mm -hmm. alternatives to our banking system. That's all really cool. But then to pull that through and become a, a really sustainable, a big organization, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's different. So um, it's a long answer, but I think the, it is quite symptomatic for also for other spaces in the Netherlands is that we, we love to start things and we love to conceptualize and we love to, to, to build, but then at a certain certain level we think okay you know it's okay i'm not you know this is not no longer my thing to start you know to build an organization everything that comes with yeah, it. very difficult i'd like to end in a little bit of of the future and maybe what success looks like for 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 you and maybe tech leap you know let's say three to five years or something what does success like look like like what, what are maybe goals that you would like to see happen um, whether it's funded startups, whether it's the amount of capital allocated, whether it's companies that, you know, IPO or something like that, or, or go international might be might be a good goal or something like that. What are some of the successes that you hope to see, you know, through TechLeap and maybe through through the fund that you help uh, collaborate on? Obviously, very visual, uh, visible outputs would be, uh, you know, unicorns and companies going international yeah. and all that. And, and uh a massive increase of available funding. We said that we we would increase it tenfold from the start. So we uh, we should be, be at uh, in two years time at 10 billion available capital or capital spent in the Netherlands on an annual basis. Uh, I think we're, I mean, if, you, if the curve as it's going now, it kind of, we actually can achieve that. But I think the true success would be to be able to establish a more a kind of an, an, an fully integrated mm -hmm. uh, ecosystem where we are no longer necessary basically where people mm -hmm. pay forward and and you know and give and give back and and where the people that are have, that exited or that have options that you know start reinvesting in in new companies and when that kind of flywheel starts to go that's i think where where real success is achieved because then we're no longer necessary and the government can actually pull back also from from all of these yeah. big spending programs because the the market will start to function effectively. So that's one big success. And then uh, more long-term for the Netherlands is if we can actually apply this flywheel uh, also to market, markets or sectors where we are traditionally very strong, but where we have not seen this. We haven't seen, for instance, in, in, in all of the horticulture, um, so food and ag, but also in health, in energy, we have not really seen that kind of you know venture-backed um, startup yeah. developments. Uh, we're seeing a lot of traditional companies doing a lot of innovation, but they're not as disruptive as they could be. And if you see the amount of technology that's developed, for instance, in the Dutch food food sector, especially in horticulture, they um, that is only used to incrementally improve the the yield on, say, tomatoes or other other products, right. but it's not 
the technology in itself is not marketed uh, globally as a, as a tech mm. as a tech firm. So we keep putting all that innovation into incremental changes, whereas we could actually use that to be to be much bigger. So that I would be my I would I, my success would be if we could actually bring kind of startup logic and, and venture capital to these very hard to reach sectors. Interesting um, for long term. Well, amazing. Thank you so much.